I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you will hear us in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The Deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcasts. And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Hello and welcome to What You Missed This Week. I'm Joe Weisenthal. This is the podcast that has the best and most interesting interviews from the Daily Market Close Show that I co-anchor with Scarlett Fu, Caroline Hyde, and Romaine Boston on Bloomberg TV. It's called What You Miss. Our aim is to take you beyond the headlines and bring you unique perspectives on the week's top stories and, well, those that you may have just missed. It's the perfect way to kick off your weekend. This week, we talked with Bill Kerr, professor at the Harvard Business School and co-director of the school's Managing the Future of Work initiative, about his new book, The Gift of Talent, How Migration Shapes Business, Economy, and Society, and how the U.S.'s immigration policies are impacting the global race for talent. The struggle can be broad-based. One of the uh, challenges that U.S. immigration policy has for employment work is that we are all uh, participating in a system that can be very crude in its selection process. So it can be that J.P. Morgan Chase in New York is struggling just like Google is struggling on, on the West Coast. In the finance industry in New York, about one-third of the college-educated workforce uh, is foreign-born. And so this is a, a critical pipeline of talent in, in your neck of the woods as well as elsewhere. Well, William, you have an administration here that has made it uh, pretty clear that they think that they can cultivate that talent from within the borders. Uh, Is there any sort of pathway uh, to sort of boost the quality of the workforce without relying on immigration? Well, I think we have to always boost the workforce both domestically and abroad. I grew up in Alabama, and I, I think developing the education system throughout the country is very important. We also have to recognize that the U.S. has had a very special uh, pipeline of talent that's come from abroad. For example, 60 percent, roughly, of the inventors that have migrated around the world have come to the United States, and that's very important for us to also be able to tap into. That, that global talent pool has really been a competitive advantage for the country. So who wins, then, if, we, uh, if the U.S. starts diminishing the uh, pool of high-skilled yeah. immigrant labor? Who do you expect to see uh, as the beneficiaries? Well, I, I don't think that necessarily anybody wins, uh, if you think about it in a global sense. Uh, the ability of us to match talented people and skilled people to where they can be best educated and trained and put their skills and passions to use, that's not a zero-sum game. That's a game that everybody can participate in. Now, whether there's one country that is going to gain the most of this, I don't think so. What we see is that cities all around the world are trying to move up their position and, and grab some global talent. And so I would expect it to be a broad-based kind of redistribution. I think it's interesting, Bill, that I've just come over from the UK and there's exactly the same issue of concerns yeah. that the Brexit debate has made immigration harder and meanwhile London desperately trying to advertise itself as yeah. a beacon of tech growth, but yet they're struggling to fight the overall national narrative. How much are we seeing these sorts of concerns that are happening in the US and the UK actually replicated in other countries as well? 
Well, I think the, the mood towards nationalistic policies uh, around the world, uh, throughout Europe, is obviously the UK and here and elsewhere, has been a, a struggle. And when we're trying to compete with people, it's not just, you know, on one side, who do we want to let in? We've also got to understand that talented people get their choice uh, across a lot of country options. And so how are we looking in the eyes of global talent? And that's where rhetoric or conversation or policies that have little direct influence on global talent emissions can impact the choices people are making. Are you seeing, uh, Bill, are you seeing any sort of migration of talent that would have come into the U.S. Uh, prior to uh, the latest sort of uh, immigration issues uh, moving to specific countries? Well, there's some, there's some early indications uh, that would favor, for example, Canada and Europe. Uh, for, for example, MBA admissions in the United States this year are, about, are down about 7%. And we have some indication that's been reallocated uh, north and, and then into some European opportunities. Likewise, we uh, recently uh, uh, sort of ended the international entrepreneur rule in the United States. Uh, and also other countries have been trying to att attract entrepreneurs to their countries. And there's some early evidence that that's also moving uh, in, uh, away from the United States to other locations. We also discussed the 13 days of hell for home builders. The 36-member Spider S&P Home Builders ETF fell for 13 consecutive trading days, the longest losing streak in the ETF's almost 13-year history. Stephen Kim, head of housing research at Evercore ISI, came on to talk about why he's been cautious on the group all year and which names are best positioned in these times of rate uncertainty. Well, I think you can say it's fairly straightforward in the sense that rates shot up over the course of the year. The home builder stocks pulled off uh, pretty much at the same time. And uh, if there's one Occam's razor in, in housing, unfortunately, it's that you know, rates go up, the stocks tend to go down. Now, what's interesting is that we're actually seeing a lot of strength in housing at the lower end of the market, okay. uh, which is actually the most important part of the market to see strength, actually. Housing strength doesn't typically trickle down. It pushes up from the bottom. Um, so the fact that you're seeing that and you're seeing very good job growth uh, is all very encouraging. We also think that the market may be overestimating the degree to which higher rates are actually pricing people out of homes. That's actually not happening. We're not seeing that. Um, so we're actually getting a little bit more intrigued at the builder stocks here. We think it's a little early. We're suggesting you can wait. No need to rush in. But we do think that we're setting up for an interesting opportunity to perhaps have a trade in the group here heading into next year. But is the weakness that we're seeing, is this all because of demand or lack of demand? I mean, it was, I think it was KB Homes just last week or someone. They, I mean, they posted a pretty big backlog of homes. So it seems like there are buyers. Yes. But, so on the, you have two things happening. Yeah. You definitely have signs of slowdown in the industry. There's no question about it. We've seen it in starts, existing home sales, new home sales, pretty much across the board, as well as Evercore ISI's own home builder survey, that's showing softness as well. So on the one hand, you're definitely seeing softness. The easy conclusion would be, oh, well, it's rates. It's because people can't afford the home, so they're no longer buying. But you're seeing strength at the low end of the market, right? That doesn't seem to suggest that people can't afford. We are not seeing cancellations increasing. We are not seeing people stretching uh, to, uh, to buy homes. Usually what happens is that when rates rise, if they can't afford it, they cancel. They get their money back. You're not seeing that happening. But Stephen, how much of also 
is this a global story? You're hearing holes in the real estate market or indeed weakening in housing demand when it comes to the UK, when it comes to other parts and regions. Is this a US domestically focused issue that's happening with the home builders? This is an international play. Uh, as much as I'd love to give credit to the average home buyer and think they are watching Bloomberg uh, and, and keeping abreast of what's going on internationally, my feeling is that home building is about as domestically oriented as you get. So I'm going to go with that side for now. Uh, Stephen, at the beginning of the year, when January home builder stocks were still riding high, part of the story has just been that there was the housing market was still in the structural hole, that it had gotten so deep from the crisis and that there was all this pent up household formation and that was still going to be a tailwind. Is that story, big picture, still in place? Absolutely. It's one of the most intriguing things that we're seeing. We have a significant pent-up demand for household formations and for home ownership as well, both. They're slightly different but related uh, in this country. And uh, we think that that, combined with the strengthening economic signs we're seeing, suggests that you actually shouldn't see continued housing strength here for the next few years. Well, when you put that in the context of rising rates, rising material costs like lumber, mm. then what's, are there particular sectors of the home building sector yeah. that would be a little bit safer for investors? Absolutely. I think the best way to think about rising rates is it doesn't necessarily prevent people from buying, but it changes what they buy. And I think therein is the opportunity. So what we are seeing in the home building industry, for example, right now is a lot of strength at the entry level. That's actually an area and a price point range where builders have been really struggling to produce enough. We think that they've cracked the code. The builders have indicated that their margins on entry-level homes are actually about as good or even sometimes better than the margin they get on some of the fancier-looking homes. And so that really creates an opportunity for them to come in and build a lot more homes at that price point where demand is still strong. That's one example. But what about regionally speaking here? Is there certain particular parts of the United States that are going to outperform because they're particularly saturated with that part of the market? Well, certainly we've seen tax reform create another very interesting uh, dynamic, uh, and uh, I don't think it's uh, lost on a lot of folk that that hit some of the coastal markets a little bit more than some of the uh, areas in the heartland, what with the uh, inability to uh, uh, deduct the salt, uh, state and local taxes, uh, and property taxes capped at 10 grand. So, yeah, that has certainly created a little bit of softness. Unfortunately, where I am in, in Westchester County, New York, things are a little softer. California California, same thing. One of the stories earlier on, before we saw this intense sell-off over the last couple of weeks, was that labor tightness was really impinging on the home builders and that it was just a matter of labor costs were really high. They couldn't find the workers to build them. How strong is that uh, in the story here? It is very important. Remember, I alluded to the fact that earlier on in this, uh, really over the last couple of years, builders have been struggling to produce enough homes at the entry level. And I said that I think they've cracked the code. What I mean by that is that the builders have discovered that consumers are willing to trade choice for clear value. That enables the builders to, to build a much more standardized product, which means they can drive more efficiencies and throughput. Mm. With the same man hour, you can create more high and that has been an important change that's come into the industry over the last couple of years. So we do believe that you will see more production from this, from even from a given labor base. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, 
data-powered transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. Then we wrapped up with Torsten Slock, chief international economist at Deutsche Bank, who came on to discuss the IMF cutting its growth outlook for the first time in two years, blaming escalating trade tensions and stresses in emerging markets. Well, let's just uh, take a deep breath and uh, walk around Central Park here. I mean, <laughs> is the trade war really that bad for the U.S.? I mean, they have some pretty significant negative numbers that they say that GDP growth will be 0.9%, almost a full percentage point lower in the U.S. as a result of the trade war. If you look at your Bloomberg screen, ECFC Go, and think about what consensus is We just happen to have that up right now. <laughs> <laughs> that shows you consensus expectations are nowhere near as bad for even 2019. So we do think, and that's to your question, Caroline, we do think that... Of of course, we're watching the trade war. It's very important, in particular, the rest, rest of the world. But if you look at the top line in this chart here, the first white number shows you the real GDP in the third quarter. It's expected to be three, then three, then three, one, and two, seven. And it's only going to drop very gradually into 2020. So this is not a slowing U.S. outlook. And that's a dramatic. And in that sense, we think that this may have an impact on the rest of the world. But the U.S. outlook is, in our view, still relatively solid. Could it be, though, that maybe with the rising stock market and low unemployment, things feel pretty good, that people are just too sanguine about the effect of a trade war on the economy and that we'll get blindsided by it? Well, uh, Purely based on the consensus expectations, we are much more worried about overheating and inflation right. than we are about a recession. But Trump's not worried about inflation. So that's uh, the consensus, as that chart also shows, is not worried either. But uh, the, I mean, all joking aside, the Fed has a target of two, and we've been below 2% in core PC inflation for essentially the last decade. We finally hit exactly two, and now the consensus expects us to stay at two for the next 18 months. You look at that and say, never ever in the history of any economy anywhere in the world have we just hit the inflation target and then moved sideways for the following 18 months. It just never happens. So the risks of overshooting are, in our view, somewhat significant. And therefore, rates markets, I think that's what they're trying to tell us at the moment, that there is a risk of overheating that I think that we should not underappreciate. Oh, well, one other thing that the IMF pointed out, though, was the potential for political risk or that the geopolitical risk would somehow swell to some level that would actually stunt uh, global growth. Uh, what do you think about so I, I have a lot of sympathy for that. But the problem is, uh, as a portfolio manager, what do I do with that? It's really difficult to predict the midterm elections. It's predict, predicting what will happen in Italy, Argentina, Turkey. I mean, across the board, it's just really tough to take that into account when you design how you should construct your portfolio. So that's why I think that as much as there's a lot of headwinds and tailwinds and different things that could happen in politics, we still end up looking at the Bloomberg screenshot and saying, you know what, what does consensus think? And do we think that we are a little bit above or a little bit below? And when you look at that, you come with an answer, well, maybe the outlook is not that bad. And maybe the biggest fear is not so much a slowdown and a recession because of a trade war. Maybe the consensus is telling you that you should worry more about overheating and inflation overshooting to the upside. Why is the IMF giving these warnings then? Are they almost trying to do a shot across the bowels to make us step back from trade wars? Oh. I, I think that the IMF has historically been very much free trade. I mean, I used to work in the division that produces the World Economic Outlook. But you, it is a good question. I think that they do look at it and believe that this is the, the fear you can have, that some of these things can play out. Uh, what I'm just saying is that you can humbly look at how it actually differs somewhat from the consensus. So we are a little bit worried that, the, that there's a little bit too much pessimism in the IMF forecast here. 
ideologically driven ide- economists. I find that hard to believe. Um, <laughs> let's talk. About, I want to go back to inflation a little bit because you mentioned that basically at no point can you ever find these Goldilocks scenarios where the, f- the inflation just hits the target and then it just sort of sits there. But we have had people predicting inflation for a long time in this country. We have been pe- had, uh, people talking about uh, full employment for a long time. And that hasn't really materialized. And, of course, the Fed itself has continued to ratchet down its estimate of where full employment is. What explains that? If you were to go back and sort of post-mortem these forecast errors, what would you identify? I think the simplest way of thinking about it is that when the crisis happened in 2008, a lot of people left the labor force and we thought that they were unemployable and they couldn't come back. At the peak, there were around four, five million, depending on exactly how you define it, who were outside the labor force. And the question was, how many of these will come back and hold wages down? In other words, what is the slack in the labor market? And the issue was that uh, there were just more people who came back, which was really great news for the economy. But that meant that inflation was held back because there were just more workers that came back and made sure that wages didn't go up too much. So in that chart there, you see that both on the orange line, which is average hourly earnings, and on the white line, which is the employment cost index. So this basically depends on what kind of inflation do you believe. The orange line is demand inflation. The white line is more cost inflation. Mm. They have been going up in the last few years, uh, but there's still at levels that are below where we were in 2006 and 2007. So in that sense, it's been a slow and weak recovery. It's not that we have had no wage inflation. It's just been a lot slower than what anyone, including the Fed, had expected. So one piece to this puzzle, though, is productivity, or one missing piece to this puzzle. So can we have a sustainable mm. economy at 2 plus 3% without an uptick in productivity? Yeah, that's a really good question. Obviously, the corporate tax cut is incentivizing companies to go out and invest in more capital and therefore create a bigger capital stock and ultimately create more productivity. We haven't quite seen that yet, but if you take the things that are in the corporate tax cut and also the immediate expensing from Trump and also the repatriation of earnings from abroad, you basically get that you have actually an outlook for CapEx that's relatively strong, namely that CapEx will be the main driver and the main reason why the growth outlook is so relatively bullish from the consensus over the next coming quarters. And certainly not bullish when you're looking at the IMF. It's been wonderful to have you here. Thank you. Torsten Slock, a man who used to help build those IMF predictions. All right, here's the story. Turkey's inflation cops guard what's left of price stability. Uh, People in Turkey, in order to fight inflation, are actually going into grocery stores and checking the price of things like onions and yogurt and toothpaste to make sure that uh, it's well properly priced to fight inflation. Well, that's one way to fight fight inflation. Micromanaging the economy? Torsten, he's still here. Well, how do, you, do you approve of that as a good uh, inflation-fighting measure? Uh, that's a somewhat unusual way of doing it. It's a conventional monetary policy, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. <laughs> and that's it for this episode of What You Missed This Week. If you like this podcast, make sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. And tune in every weekday to our daily market close show from 3.30 to 5 p.m. on Bloomberg TV and from 4 to 5 p.m. streaming on Twitter. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.